Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Well, good afternoon, or good morning, or good evening, wherever you are in the world, and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. For we are in the business of provocative inquiry. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room. So, Ravinder, do you want to boast about your chat room? Tell everybody about it. Always want to boast about my chat room. It's the best one out there. We have a great group of people. You know, I've been in other chat rooms before, and the conversations don't ever get off the ground. But now we have great conversation in there. It's very stimulating. Adds to the whatever subject matter it is we're discussing on the air. Everyone has, you know, their own contribution. So I learn a lot in there. Uh, it's definitely worth you coming in and joining us if you can. So that is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I'd like to draw your attention to something we call thinking. I have often spoken about life beliefs as analogous to a spider's web in that they are all attached in some way, even our dissonant beliefs. So as with the spider's web, if we vibrate one strand, the entire web is affected. It is important to consider how we think in exactly the same interrelated way. For the basic elements of thought begin with concepts. Indeed, we can think of concepts as the atoms that build the molecules we know as propositions. Let me unpack that some. Concepts are ideas that bind as molecules. Concepts include definitions such as integrity, justice, fairness, freedom, and so forth. All concepts are organized in a structure and are therefore as interrelated as the strands in a spider web or the atoms in a molecule. The problem with concepts is that we do not necessarily agree on their meaning. Take the word fairness, for example. Is it fair to distribute the benefits of one person's labor to another person who did not earn it? Is it fair for the person who earns something to keep it all while others go without? In other words, what is fairness and to whom? We often find ourselves attempting to communicate today by sharing concepts, only to discover that not only were we not adequately communicating, we actually disagree on what we thought was a shared concept. Speaking plainly, we all might believe in a concept of fairness, but fail to agree on what fairness is. Clearly, our thinking may hold the concepts that betray the very meaning we wish for them to hold. For example, we may think that we believe in the concept of freedom, only to discover that we really don't. Let me give you a simple example. If we say freedom should provide that a person is free in the sense of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, insofar as they do no harm to another human being, then we are saying that they can believe whatever they choose to believe. Okay, let's pursue this just a bit to make it clear how conflict can arise. Let's say someone wishes to raise fighting dogs and then fight them to the death. This may offend you, But how is this any different than killing some wild animal like a deer? Or another example, one my wife finds disgusting is the religious practice of washing the floors of a temple with milk. She finds this upsetting due to the waste and problems inherent in farming practices. But for those who participate in this sacred spiritual practice, it is a holy event. Once again, the concept of freedom gets lost in our differences. How are we to use concepts then to properly think through difficult questions? The fact is, behind every concept is a set of definitions, and inherent to our definitions is a priority based upon our life beliefs. As such, when we think through our concepts considering the possible ramifications 
due to differences in opinions, we are likely to discover that the very molecules that build our rational processes are corrupted by inequities, except where there is a universal agreement. Every concept holds both denotative and connotative value points. Freedom denotes an idea that on its surface seems easy to agree upon, at least in our Western world. However, the connotative characteristics, those emotional values, will invariably lead to differences. Communication then becomes more difficult and uncertain unless we clearly define what it is that we mean by virtue of our use of any concept. My suggestion, investigate your beliefs, concepts, in an effort to understand what it is that you mean so that you can be clear in your communications. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I think this is really uh, important stuff to think through. There have certainly been times you and I have had a conversation, come up with a plan, decided, you know, decided what we're going to do, only to realize that what we thought the other was talking about was something totally different. It was like we missed each other because we had our own underlying ideas as to what was going on. So it all comes down to communication. Um, and these days, I think communication is even more important. And it's important to think through exactly what it is that you are thinking and feeling and why you why you are that way. I think if more people did that, the country would not be as divided as it is because we do have lots in common. It just seems to Everyone's pulling on their hard lines in either direction these days, and they're not really thinking through the whole picture as clearly as they should. So, yeah, stop and think about what it is that you're thinking, why you're thinking, and then understand that just because you can use certain words doesn't mean that's what the other person heard. Well, you know, you and I had a conversation earlier this week, and we talked about this precise situation, but the example that we were discussing then was honor killings. Yeah. And... You know, when you start talking about honor killings in one culture, that's an imperative. And you may say, but that's gross and that's horrible. But then we have laws that require capital punishment. So you, you really do find that you walk sometimes some really gray lines here. And look at this. I can't even imagine, you know, killing your child out of honor. But, no. you know, I, yeah. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Stephen Guise, and we discussed many habits. Eileen wrote, So he wrote a book with a reward program, but he no longer thinks rewards work. How's that work? Jack wrote, I like the idea of many habits, but fail to see how this is different from the Japanese technique of Kaizen. Karen wrote, I love your radio program, Provocative Enlightenment. Please keep getting the great guests. Paul wrote, I enjoy listening to Provocative Enlightenment. Thank you. Moving on, David wrote, Eldon is an incredible author. <laughs> well, hey, thank you very much, David. I appreciate that. Cynthia wrote, I used your Intertalk Serenity CD, and my thoughts have not been this peaceful since I was a child. Thank you. All right, you know, we love your letters. And uh, I want you to keep sending them, please. Uh, remember, if you have comments or criticisms about the show, please feel free to share those with us as well. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for Letters Today. And again, I want to thank you for your feedback. Now to this week's show, The Like Switch, an ex-FBI agent's guide to influencing, attracting, and winning people over. With author Professor Jack Schaefer. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. John R. goes by Jack Schaefer, Ph.D., is a psychologist, professor, intelligence consultant, and former FBI special agent. Dr. Schaefer spent 15 years conducting counterintelligence and counterterrorism investigations and seven years as a behavioral analyst for the FBI's National Security Division's Behavioral Analysis Program. He developed spy recruitment techniques, interviewed terrorists, and trained agents in the art of interrogation and persuasion. Dr. Schaefer contributes online pieces for Psychology Today magazine, has authored or co-authored six books, and has published numerous articles in professional and popular journals. He is a professor with the School of Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice at Western Illinois University. His copy reads, quote, 
In the like switch, he presents techniques for how you can influence, attract, and win people over. Learn how to think and react like your favorite TV investigators from Criminal Minds or CSI, as Dr. Schaefer shows you how to improve your LQ, or likability quotient. Spot the lie, both in person and online. Master nonverbal cues that influence how people perceive you and turn up or turn down the intensity of a relationship. Close quote. Now, one of the great things about hosting this show is that from time to time, we not only have great guests, but I can come across a truly fantastic book. And the like switch has got to be one of the best in years. So on that, let's get the author himself in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Jack Schaefer. Hello. Good to be with you. Good. We we like to consider three things, sir, in our shows. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us a little about yourself and why and when you became interested in criminal science. Well, actually, it goes back to when I was uh, eight or ten years old, when my mom took me to the mall. I would enjoy just sitting on a bench where people walk about store to store, and I would look at their behaviors and wonder why they did certain things. And uh, it seemed quite natural for me to do that. And as I continued through life, I kept increasing my knowledge of of what people do and how they do it. And, and then it become, became a very valuable skill when I became a police officer for Hinsdale Police Department in Illinois. And then uh, once I joined the FBI, I used uh, my skills to, as a counterintelligence officer, I used my skills to recruit you know, foreign intelligence officers to catch spies and to uh, interview suspects. And uh, I found the skills to be extremely valuable. And then later in my career, I discovered that a lot of the tools that I use to talk to people and interview suspects are the same tools we can use in our, in our normal lives when we talk to people, very effective tools. What I decided to do was to take those tools I used as an investigator and kind of convert them over to normal usage so people can take advantage of how to build relationships, maintain relationships, and uh, initiate relationships. Your book's a great read, and, you know, it's, it's full of humor as, as well as enlightenment. Um, you heard today's spotlight. How important is it to shape the values attached to concepts when you're recruiting a spy? Well, it's, it's extremely important. What you have to do is you have to get in, you know, use em- empathy to get into that other person's skin and look at the world through their perspective. And that's one of the most important things we can do when we talk to, to people in our lives is we're so uh, focused on ourselves that we rarely focus on the other person, especially in this technological age where we just text and we kind of walk around in our little tech bubbles and, and occasionally we bounce bubbles, but we never really get into that other person's life. And I think what the book uh, shows is how do you get into the other person's life and how valuable it is to develop relationships when we look at life through somebody else's perspective. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed is a story you open up your book with when you say getting into somebody else's life, because it seems kind of counterintuitive. But you tell a story about an interrogation where all you did was read a newspaper. You just sat there yeah, on the bed and read it. Just share that story with us, will you please? Yeah, I had uh, an individual who, who basically told me, I'm not going to talk to you at all. And so what I did was I used what, what I refer to in the book as the personal relationship index. And one of the first thing of developing a personal relationship is you have to be in the same proximity they are. So you have to be with that person. And the proximity alone has a lot of advantages because if you spend time with somebody, even if you don't communicate with them, they have a predisposition then to like you. So the first part of what I wanted to do was just sit in that person's cell and just spend time with them. And then I was reading the newspaper for a set period of time, and then after the time elapsed, I left. And I kept being, you know, I kept going to talk to him and sit, not not actually talk to him, but sit and read the newspaper. And eventually, over time, he decided maybe I wasn't such a threat. And 
at that point, curiosity takes over. So at one point, he, he turned and said, why are you here? Why do you keep coming every day? And I said, well, I want to talk to you. And uh, I just continued to read my newspaper and left. And eventually, curiosity got to him, and uh, he asked me again, why are you here? And I said, well, I want to talk to you. He said, well, I'd like to talk to you. And I said, well, you sure? You told me, you know, beginning that you didn't want to talk to me. And he said, no, no, I really want to talk to you. Why, I want to find out why you're here and what you're doing this for. So it was the proximity. It was the frequency. I spent duration with him. And then once we got that dialogue initiated, then we began to introduce some intensity to our relationship. And that's how I was able to get him to uh, cooperate with us, even though he was very reluctant in the beginning. And that's kind of what we do, don't we, when we meet people? Because when that personal relationship index or the, uh, is the frequency, the duration, and the uh, intensity of relationships, it kind of fits the way we meet people. We're, it we're is. in the same place we, they are, and then we frequently they are in the same place. And then there's duration. And the important thing about duration is the more time I spend with somebody, the more somebody trusts me, the more somebody will allow me to get into their space, get into their psychological space. They'll share more intimate details of, of their life because everybody can think back at the person that had the most influence in them. I'll bet they that person that spent the most time with that person. You, um, we kind of jumped ahead here because you've outlined three of the four building blocks you refer to as your friendship formula. So I'm going to ask you to back up a little bit and flesh out your friendship formula. Um, You know, what those four fundamentals are and again, refresh why they're as important as they are. Yeah, the well, we decided, you know, we had a lot of uh, agents come to us and ask us, how do you develop sources? How do you meet people? How do you introduce yourself to people? How do you develop relationships? So we sat down and we kind of thin-sliced how people interact or how, how they develop relationships. And we brought it down, the formula down to basically four basic elements. And the first one is proximity. You have to have proximity with somebody or you won't have any relationship at all. And proximity can be physical, and it can also be virtual. But you have to know about one another initially. That's the most important thing. And like I said before, as proximity predisposes people to like one another, even if they don't communicate with one another. And you, you often see this with runners. They'll run, you know, they'll run every day at the same time and see the same people. And if you ask them, do you like the people you see running? They'll say, yeah, I really like that person. Well, you've never met them. You've never talked to them. Yeah, but I see them every day. And that's where frequency comes in. So you frequently see somebody, you're predisposed to like that person. Even if you don't talk to them, like that runner sees that same person running every day, they have a tendency to like that person, even though they haven't met them. And then the the, uh, third one is duration. So we spend time with people, and that's why I think is important, because we share space, we share experiences, and we share one another's lives. And that can only occur during a duration of time. And so once we, we start begin sharing things with people, then intensity of that relationship is probably the most important thing about a relationship. And it can, intensity can be measured in many ways. It can be measured with Mutual gaze, you know, leaning towards one another, uh, you know, the whispering, holding hands, uh, look, uh, uh, you know, uh, having common ground and shared values, and and those are the things that kind of are the cement that glue that relationship together. And if most people think back to any of their relationships, they're going to see that that friendship formula. Is, is very important and is the foundation of how they develop the relationship. I can't. I, 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 you used runners as an example. And as soon as you said runners, I thought of your your story about misattribution in the book. Uh, how do you get a date using the law of misattribution, let's say with a runner, since that's the example you use in the book? Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing because 
when we uh, have a, a feeling, of, a, a, a good feeling that comes with, uh, with uh, an event that we're really not sure what we can attribute that good feeling towards, we tend to attribute it to the person that's nearest to us. So I often uh, instruct some of my students who want to date other students, and I ask them, what do they do? And they say, well, they run all the time. I said, well, it might be a good idea for you to run with them or run in the same area they do, even if you don't talk to them, because when we run, we release endorphins. And endorphins make us feel good about ourselves. So when you get done running, you have this good feeling, and we don't really attribute it to running necessarily. So if another person is nearby, then we have a tendency to uh, attribute that good feeling to to that other person. So it's a subtle way to kind of predispose somebody to like you before you meet them. Any other examples of that you can think of for the guys out there, or for that matter, the gals out there looking to connect with someone? Well, exercise is is probably the the best way because a lot of people exercise, uh, and if you, and even if you don't exercise, and the person you're interested in happens to run and then come back to the office right away, well, you could be near their cubicle at that time or interact with them at that time, and then they will attribute that good feeling towards that person, and that'll predispose them to like that person. So you don't necessarily have to run to do it. You just have to be by there. Or if they go to a coffee shop or they, you know, wherever they exercise, then you can go ahead and do that. One of the other things, probably a more subtle thing you can do is uh, take a, your date on a, uh, take your, you know, the, your person of interest on a date to a scary movie. Because when you go to a scary movie, you get that same kind of, you know, bonding or that same kind of feeling when when you're afraid and you share that feeling with somebody. And this occurs when, more commonly, when we talk about, you know, soldiers and police officers and people that are in very traumatic experiences, they often feel this bond, this band of brothers type bond. Right. Well, that feeling comes from that sharing of their common traumatic experience. And you you can't really attribute why one likes one another except for that traumatic experience. So if you take uh, someone to a scary movie, then you have a tendency to create that bond also. So that's a subtle way to increase your uh, likability. How often do you have students take your classes just so they can learn how to date? Especially in this day and age where everything is texting, you know? I know. I I, I I dare say there's probably a more that that do it for dating than for uh, interviewing. Uh, a lot of students they say well, I want to learn how to, you know, become more personable. I'm I'm a little shy. I'm a little introverted. How do I go about meeting people? What do I have to do? And you know, I generally tell that those people, especially when they live in the dorms and they're freshmen. And they're alone for the first time, away from everybody they know, and they're kind of, it's kind of a scary experience. And so what I tell them, I said, you have people come to you. And they go, well, how do you do that? I said, well, number one, keep your dorm room door open. So when people walk by, it's an invitation to come in. They're not closed off. The second thing I want you, you know, I tell them I want them to do is to find something that they really like if they're sports fans or NASCAR fans or artists, whatever topic they really like, whatever interest they have passion for, I say put things that can be viewed from the door around your room. So when somebody walks by with a similar interest, they'll say, oh, you're a a sports fan of the same team. Oh, you like that artist. Oh, you like NASCAR. And then those people will actually come in based on the curiosity of things in the room and kind of introduce themselves. And what's what's good about this is that the people that walk by that aren't interested in the same thing you're interested in will continue to walk by. So you're kind of selecting the people that you want to share those same same interests with. And that, that makes for a better relationship. 
So it's kind of a, a uh, kind of an invitation. And if you're shy, you have people come to you. And that's what it's kind of important. And I've talked to a number of students, and they say, wow, it works really great. You know, the people that come in my room and introduce themselves, they like what I like. And we get along really well. Cool. And, and, you, and, and once, you know... Well, I was just saying, once shy people meet somebody and they crack that ice of that first meeting, then, you know, the relationship takes off. And, and they, you know, they can and enjoy each other's company and, and not feel alone and get support. And that's a very important skill set that you're teaching, Dr. Schaefer, because it's one that seems to be lost on our younger culture with all the technology, etc. Many of them find themselves there. We have a hard break coming up. We're speaking with Dr. Jack Schaefer about his life and book, The Like Switch. You can learn more about Dr. Schaefer by visiting his website at Dr. Jack Schaefer. That's S-C-H-A-F-E-R dot com. Now, we have a video for you of our guest in the chat room today discussing uh, dating and nonverbal cues. So be sure and get on over to the chat room at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High Is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Jack Schaefer about his enlightening new book, The Like Switch. You can learn more about Dr. Schaefer by visiting his website at drjackschaefer.com. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a new interest of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas. Never before have we had a guest not have a favorite music. However, our guest today said, essentially, I don't have favorite music. You choose it. Okay. We just played our national anthem. As a man who served this country for many years, how do you feel, Dr. Schaefer, 
when you see Colin Kaepernick refuse to stand for the anthem, even on 9-11. Now, of course, he absolutely has the right because many of our people have given life and limb to provide it. So I'm not asking about his rights. Rather, I wish to know about your emotional reaction. Well, of course, of course I'm disappointed. And I'm disappointed because I think he failed to look at America in the grand scale. If you look back, even reaching back to World War II, America basically sacrificed 600,000 lives to free millions and millions of people. So they could live a life of freedom. And just because there's a little hiccup in, in our society, as he perceives it, he fails to realize that America has, has been a tremendous powerhouse to keep freedom and secure freedom and free people. And I think that's what he's forgetting about. I so do share your sentiments, sir. All right, listen. In your book, you talk about nonverbal cues that you can use for the detection of deception. How you can determine if someone is lying. I have little experience in that area, but share with our audience. What are those nonverbal cues? A lot of the nonverbal cues, or most of the nonverbal cues that we associate deception with, come from the fight flight response. When, when, we, when, we, when we're lying to someone, we typically go into the fight flight response, and that is we try to prepare our bodies to either fight or run away. And that causes us to have a lot of energy. And what we typically do is we try to reach equilibrium. And the body tends to try to to uh, dismiss or vent off the anger, or I mean, of the of the anxiety or the stress by doing different movements. So one of the things that we do is we we use a what we call blocking devices. And that's very interesting. You can tell if somebody is deceiving if they cover their eyes or cover their mouth or close their eyelids for one to two seconds when you're talking to them. So blocking is one way to, to look at deception. Another way to detect deception is lip compression. You can press your lips closely together, and you can uh, – what the people want to do is clamp their mouth shut and secure it shut so they don't say anything they, they don't want to say. And another interesting thing about the lips, and I, I think this is important, is if you're talking to somebody and they purse their lips, and that's just a, a slight outward movement, you tuck your lips together and just kind of an outward movement of the lips, that's called a mm-hmm. lip purse. Mm-hmm. And what's important about a lip purse is if I'm talking to somebody and I see them purse their lips, it means they've already formed an opinion that is in direct opposition to what I just told them. So it, it kind of gives you an idea what people are thinking. And I, and I use it in class quite a bit. When uh, I'm saying something, I see a student pursing their lips, and I say, ah, you've got something uh, different to say or something in opposition. And they always look at me, how did you know that? <laughs> and uh, I, I don't necessarily tell them. I just say that I'm in the FBI. I know these things. I'm trained. But what I was really looking at was the lip purse. And uh, it's very important to look at that. Or a lip tug. When you're talking to people and they tug their lips, that means they really want to say something, but they're a little bit hesitant to say it. So what I generally say when I I see a student do that or somebody I'm talking to in, in general, I always say, oh, you've got something to say, but you're a little hesitant. They go, yeah, I am a little hesitant. How did you know? And again, I knew because of the the tug of the lip. The other several honest indicators of deception are the shoulder shrug accompanied by a palms-up gesture. That would be a sign indicating truthfulness. Uh, The other indicators of deception are excessive sweating, sweating. something we call illustrators, truthful people, when they describe what they're doing, they'll actually illustrate what they're saying with their hands. They'll say, like, I was going up the stairs, and you'll see their hand going up as if they're going up the stairs. And people who tell the truth tend to illustrate what they're saying because they lived it. People Mm -hmm. who lie 
have a tendency not to illustrate because they didn't live what they're talking about, so they can't illustrate. So we look for illustrators, and that that gives us clues. And the thing about nonverbals is you have to be careful because no one nonverbal indicates deception. You have to look for clusters and clusters of clusters of nonverbals to indicate deception. So right. it's it's more difficult than I think what they portray on TV or in in uh, common uh, pop psychology. Okay, how about spotting lies online? I'm not going to have the, any of those cues. How would I do that? Well, now you're looking at, well, there, there's different ways. Men and women tend to increase their, uh, when they describe themselves, they, they tend to inflate their looks or inflate their abilities because men typically want to inflate their abilities and especially their ability to provide support for uh, their person of interest. So they'll say, I probably work at a better job. I'm taller than I am. I'm uh, more important than I am. I make more money than I am. And they, they have a tendency to do that because women, when they look at men, they look in essentially how much or what can that man do or how many, what kind of attributes does he have that he, that he can use to support me and possibly any children that we may have. So women like to look for that security. And then when women lie, on the other hand, they want to make themselves more attractive because men, when they look at women, tend to be more visual. So women will exaggerate more of their visual qualities versus their uh, their uh, intellectual characteristics. And I think that's just one of the things that men and women do subconsciously. So you have to be very careful online. You know, when you talk about that, of course, I think of it as puffing. You know, we see everybody puff. Uh, in fact, Dan Ariely ran a very, Professor Ariely, a very interesting study where he looked at how long it took people, two strangers coming together to tell a lie, and the average was less than three minutes. Uh, and, and most of these lies were just puffing. They, you know, just making themselves appear more important or bigger. But, but when you, when you do that, I think of the story you told of your son spending 150 bucks for a wallet. Hey, share that one with us, will you? Yeah, well, it was kind of interesting. He, I learned a lesson from him because when he was in high school, uh, he had a job. And every penny he made from that job, he would go out and buy the most expensive clothes he could. He would be like gentleman's quarterly. I mean, he would buy the, the most expensive clothes, the latest clothes, the finest designs. And I said, fine, if, if it's your money, I, I don't care what you spend it on. You're working for it. And then one day we went to the mall, and we were looking at wallets. And he's looking at a $150 wallet at a... <laughs> a very uh, high-class store, and I pulled out my threefold, and I said, look, why are you spending $150 for a wallet? I paid 10 bucks for this one. It served me well for a number of years. And he said, Dad, it's it's the details that count. He said, if I'm dressed up uh, with the highest quality of clothes and the latest style, and I walk around with a threefold wallet that's cost 10 bucks, that's a dead giveaway that I'm an imposter. And people will see that I'm... Uh, I'm not who I say I am. He said that works for shoes, too. If you don't polish your shoes, it doesn't matter how much you dress and how well you dress. If you don't polish your shoes, you're an imposter. So he taught me uh, an important lesson that it's in the details. So if you're looking for, we call it perception management. And if somebody's trying to pretend to be something they're not, you look for those little details that most people don't think about when they're trying to deceive others. And I, I do that a lot when I interview people. They'll come in with a, maybe they'll come in with, a, you know, nice clothes on, but the tie doesn't fit right because they've never learned how to tie a tie and they don't mm -hmm. wear a tie and they're very uncomfortable with a tie. So you look at that very detail and you go, aha, this guy is probably trying to manage, you know, his, his perception for me. So I look at him and think, oh, he's, he's this person when in fact, I know he's not based on those little details that come up, such as wearing a tie. 
or counting the stitches. And now that's one that yeah. I had never heard of before before I yeah, read your and, book. And, and that was interesting because uh, that actually, um, I've had a number of occasions to use that. I would be out with a a female agent and I would interview a uh, foreign intelligence officer. And uh, when, when we, you know, left the interview and, and debriefed, she said that, uh, well, did you see that coat? That wasn't really a good coat, and that wasn't a good shirt. And I'm going, well, how do you know all that? She said, well, I counted the thread, the stitches. And I, and I said, what? <laughs> she <laughs> said, the more, the higher the thread count, the better quality of the shirt. And what particularly drew my attention was she said that expensive shirts have four-millimeter buttons versus two-millimeter buttons. And I looked at my shirt, and I said, well, yeah, I guess I have a two-millimeter button. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I then went to, you know, expensive uh, clothes, clothing shops, and sure enough, they're four millimeter buttons, and they're they're a higher thread count. So, I mean, it, little things like that 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 are very meaningful and telling. For our audience, the book, the like switch, is packed with this kind of detail. You you really need to get the book. Uh, all right, listen. We recently had Mary Ellen O'Toole on the show. I, you probably know her, or at least know who she is, yes. right? Yeah, and she and she shared with us what she described as the most frightening experience of her career with the BAU. It turned out that for her, this was an interview with a serial killer who charmed her. She had to keep telling herself who the guy was in order not to fall for his charismatic ways, charismatic ways, you know. How often have you been fooled by someone who knew how to avoid giving themselves away? You know, I was fooled one time at the beginning of my career, and what she's describing is a psychopath. They're they're chameleons. They're very charming. They will mold and blend to whatever you want. They know how to manipulate people. They have no conscience, and they're able to very smoothly manipulate people. And, yeah, it's a frightening experience, and the first time it happened to me, I wasn't even aware of it until after the interview, and I started looking at all the things that, you know, but, you know when you look twenty twenty hindsight, you look back at that interview, you go, my gosh, I was taken advantage of. And I said, you know, that, that that's never going to happen to me again. So I went and did a lot of research on psychopaths and how they operate and how do you keep them from taking advantage of you. And there's several ways. Psychopaths will use misdirection. So when you ask a psychopath a question, they'll use misdirections to get you on another topic that you really enjoy. And so then you end up speaking more about the topic that is not relevant to the question you asked. So you, it's like, it's like she said, you have to pay attention. If he doesn't answer the question, you got to say, excuse me, this is the question I want answered. This is the question. Keep repeating that question until you get an answer. And the other thing about psychopaths is they rarely, if ever, will out now confess to a, to a crime. So what you have to do is kind of verbally back them into a corner, and you have to give them, I typically give them three options. They're all bad options, but one's worse than the other ones, and one's less, you know, complicated than the other ones. So right. they have a tendency to look out for their own self-interest and pick the one that is the least troublesome of, of the options, and that is one of the options that, that you actually want them to pick. So, yes, she's right. It's it's a scary thing when you talk to psychopaths. Yeah. You, well, when you have all that training and somebody runs a number by you and you just don't even see it, or when you begin to actually build empathy for them and then realize who it is that, you know, you're doing this with, that, that has to be extremely frightening. And that's what happened to me initially. I mean, first time they get you when you're new and you're not experienced, you just have to use it as a learning experience. And the next time you meet a psychopath, recognize it and know how to deal with them. Right. So in a way, I, I, I thank that that guy because he, he taught me some really valuable lessons in how to talk to psychopaths. Okay. My youngest son attended middle school in a, in a kind of a rough area. And uh, there was a lot of verbal abuse and whatnot. He developed naturally an urban scowl that when he went off to prep, 
um, high school, preparatory high school, where, you know, you had some civilized, well, I shouldn't even say it that way. Anyway, when he went off to preparatory high school, he carried this urban scowl with him, and we're just now getting him to, to smile. Tell everybody what an urban scowl is and how you develop it and how unconsciously it can it can ruin your life. Yeah, uh, we go through life. We look for threats, and we send off signals to people, either friend signals or foe signals. And what happens in the, in the urban environment where there's danger all about and there's a lot of predators, we have a tendency not to smile. We don't tilt our head. We don't look at people. We don't eyebrow flash. Those are all those friend signals. We don't do all those things. And what what happens is a predator will look at you, and you have this urban scowl, and you're telling him, don't don't mess around with me because I know what's going on. I can protect myself. And they have a tendency to look for people that are more vulnerable. And so, if, and it happened to me. I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a rather dicey neighborhood. And I walked around with that scowl all day, every day. And then I met my wife, and she lived out in the suburbs. And the first time I went out to meet her and her friends, her friends were uh, very skeptical. They were like, man, Jax, he looks mean. He looks like he's going to bite our heads off. It looks like he's, he, he, he just, he's just cantankerous, uh, surly. Maybe you better not date him. And she said, no, he's a really nice guy. And she asked me about that, and I said, well, I am really nice. But why do they think that? Well, it turns out I'm wearing my urban scowl in an environment where there's not predators, where there's friendly people. And I counsel a lot of students and also, you know, agents that that grew up in big cities and they get assigned to small towns. I said, you got to get rid of the urban scowl. You've got to learn how to smile, tilt your head, eyebrow flash. And let people know that you're a friend, not a foe. Should change your gait a little bit too, shouldn't you? I mean, generally, someone in that uh, that comes from that background, their stride is uh, quicker, more purposeful. They walk faster. Um, they otherwise display, I guess that's where I'm going, physical uh, characteristics that are, you know, don't tread on me characteristics. And one of them is, and the motto I, I, I learned early in life is, is you walk like you, some, you have somewhere to go and you talk like you have something to say. And that gives you that. That plus an urban scowl, people aren't going to, they're, they're not going to think you're prey. And they'll choose somebody else. You, 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 you cover something that I hadn't even thought about before. In in a chapter called, or well, in a, in a piece called, "Let Your Feet Do the Talking." What do you mean, "Let Your Feet Do the Talking"? Yeah, that's interesting because I often had to go to to embassy parties and parties that I didn't know anybody there, and I'm supposed to mingle and make friends and talk to people. And what happens is, how do you, especially if you're an introvert and you're a little shy, how do you integrate into a, a large crowd? Well, the one thing you can do is look at people's feet. If their feet, if there's two people standing there and their feet are facing one another, that means that there's no place to put your feet. Therefore, you shouldn't join that group. That means it's a private conversation, and they they are not looking for anybody to join the group. Now, if those same two people have their feet slightly outward, and there's a space there. Their feet form a V, and that open part of the V is a place you can put your feet. That's an invitation for somebody to join them. And you can step right in, and and and, and they, will, they will accept you uh, into the conversation. Same way with a group of people. If they form a semicircle, then you can join them. If you have three people, and they're all their feet are all pointing towards the center of the circle, then they're saying, look, this is a private conversation. Keep out. But if they open up and then there's a place to put your feet, then you're going to be welcomed into that uh, group. So the, I guess the rule of thumb is if you can put your feet, you, you can meet. The rule of thumb, get the book, The Like Switch. You're going to love the book. It's a great read. 
Dr. Schaefer, we have um, less than a minute. In that time, I want you to tell everybody how they can reach out to you, where they can get their book, how they can learn more about your work. Yeah, you can uh, you can get the book at Amazon.com, iTunes, uh, Barnes & Noble, any, you know, good bookstore. And also, I, I have a, a blog on psychologytoday.com, and uh, I cover a lot of these topics and a lot more uh, topics uh, on how to detect deception and, and read people's behaviors. So those are a couple really good places that people can can get some information about uh, what relationships are about, how to improve them, how to make friends and and maintain friendships and, and repair relationships if the relationship happens to be in uh, needs some repair. So those are yeah. the, those are the main places you can go. And I have a and Facebook it, site called The Like Switch. You can also visit. Oh, go ahead. What's that website? It's The Like Switch. On the Facebook. Like Switch. Just, dot com. Yeah, the the dot Like Switch. Or no, it's just The Like Switch. Okay. And it's on right. Facebook. If you bring Facebook up and put The Like Switch there, you'll see it. All right, I got you now. Okay, again, the book is The Like Switch, and uh, Dr. Schaefer's. Uh, Earl is uh, jackschafer.com, drjackschafer.com. Dr. Schaefer, we have really appreciated your willingness to share your work with us today. Thank you. Uh, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember... The like switch. That's a great title. Believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.